with Brigadier General Chuck Yeager in Lancaster, California on May 17th, 79. Uh, really, I, I've read a lot of background notes about the, uh, the X1 and XS1, it was called, the X1As yes, uh -huh. and Bs and so on. Uh -huh. But what, of course, I haven't got, and what, of course, I would like to get from you are your sort of personal recollections of uh, how different it was after Mustangs and so on. Did you find it a great step upwards? No, well, no, because my it wasn't a transition from Mustangs into the X-1. It was a, I flew many, many of the jet aircraft, uh, like the Meteor and the, and the uh, Vampire and the P-80s, P-84s, uh, all the straight-wing jet, jets that came out in 44, 45, and 46, and was involved in a lot of test work and on the, all the Jap airplanes and the German airplanes before I got started on the X-1. So. Uh, I knew a little bit about compressibility and pitch up and stuff like that. So really, what didn't I didn't jump right out of the Mustang into the X1s. So. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously, the way you could switch from one type to the other and, and assess its performance abilities and so on meant that you uh, were the sort of pilot who was pretty. Well, that's your job. That's what you're trained for. Sure. And, uh, and I I went through the test pilot school in 1946 and. And then when the Air Force took over the X-1 uh, program in 47, uh, it was a, just a natural. I had quite a bit of flying time under my belt in, in a, quite a few different airplanes. And mm -hmm. What were your um, feelings when you were on your first uh, flight on the X-1? Well, uh, basically, uh, I, I couldn't get too much information on the flying characteristics because uh, Slick Goodland, uh, the Bell pilot, was he was really dicked off. Uh, at the Air Force because, see, what happened uh, when Bell, they started working on the X-1 in 19, uh, latter part of 43, con the conception, and then they started construction on it in 1944. Then it was finished in, uh, in the 1946, and Jack Willems was the Bell test pilot, did all of the glide flights because they didn't have the rocket engine ready to put in the airplane. He did the glide flights down at Pine Castle, Florida, and then uh, Later on in 46, uh, in fact, the fall or the late summer of 46, uh, Jack Willem got killed in a souped-up P-39 at the Cleveland Air Races. So they assigned uh, a pilot named Chalmers S. Goodland, Slick Goodland, and he, and he flew the X-1 out to .8 Mach number, 20 powered flights up to 40,000 feet. But that was phase one, and then phase two, uh, was after that, and there was a great deal of uh, there's a great deal of bonus money involved in this because Slick was a civilian test pilot, and uh, and Bell, of course, it, it was a high risk program. So Slick had, I think, he collected about fifty thousand for phase one, and phase two called taking the airplane out to one point one, and and Slick uh, kind of balked at uh, the way Bell was going to pay him off. They were going to pay him off in a lump sum of one hundred fifty thousand. He wanted paid over a five year period for income tax purposes and he was dragging his feet and the program was being delayed in the spring of 47 and I don't know you know Tex Johnson I've heard of him well Tex Tex was a bell, in charge of Bell mm -hmm. testing at that time and and Tex actually flew the X-1 one flight and uh, to sort of collaborate uh, Slick's uh, desires and it was they said it was a dangerous program and Slick uh, should be paid uh, you know the way he wanted it paid but uh, at that time, unbeknowing to me, uh, uh, General Boyd, or then Colonel Boyd, the chief of flight test there at Wright Field, uh, was looking at the program uh, very hard. And he went to uh, then the old Air Material Command and 
said, well, why don't we take this program over because uh, we've got pilots as qualified as Slick Goodland and we'd like to get the Air Force into the testing business. See, we hadn't become a separate Air Force then. We became a separate Air Force in September 47, which was just a couple weeks before the first successful supersonic flight in the X-1. And, uh, and he finally talked uh, the Air Material Command to taking over the X-1 program, taking it away from Bell, and uh, going ahead and assigning it to the Air Force, and naturally it fell under the Flight Test Division, and, and the old man then uh, started screening the pilots. And I, I didn't, uh, as I recall, uh, I didn't know too much about the X-1 program. I'd been out to Miroc quite a few times uh, on test programs on different kinds of airplanes, and I'd seen it, and uh, kind of a you know, weird-looking system being a rocket. I, I, I'd tangle with the uh, ME-163s uh, there in Germany, but I didn't know too much about the airplane. I really didn't expect to get uh, picked as a pilot, but uh, he went through most of the fellows and finally uh, settled in on uh, myself and Bob Hoover, and Bob was backup pilot. And so when we started, I couldn't get information. I went to Slick Goodland, and I talked to him, and uh, <laughs> a... Uh, he said, well, you know, if you want an official checkout, I'll do it for $1,000. And I said, well, you know, I figure if you can fly it, I can fly it. Forget it. So I made three glide flights uh, without any rocket fuel. And, yeah, it was a dream to fly. God, it's fabulous. The controls are beautiful, uh, quiet, and really a well-coordinated little airplane. And it still had conventional wire controls, didn't yeah, it? It's, well, it actually, it's a shielded cable. Yeah. And... And actually, the uh, the ailerons had uh, flutter dampeners built into the system, so it was a it wasn't a most optimum control system in the world, but it was still just a conventional push-pull uh, cable controls. And the, the uh, my first powered flight uh, since Slick had had the airplane out to 0.8 Mach number, and I had had uh, P84s out to 8.2, and the P84 at A2 would, would buffet and begin to pitch up uh, because it had a little thicker wing than the X1. The X1, number one, which I like, which I started working on because it had the thinnest wing at 8% wing and a 6% yeah. tail. And the number two had a 10% wing and an 8% tail. And Slick did all the flying on number two. He wouldn't fly number one because it uh, had about 190 mile an hour stall speed with flaps down, whereas the number two was about 140 and it was easy to land much easier, but I liked the number one because it was a little hotter airplane, uh, and I figured a lot less drag. So I started out in my three glide flights, uh, I had no problem with it at all, uh, and uh, I stalled it clean, and, uh, and you know, just fooled around with the, ended up my first glide flight in a dogfight with Bob Hoover on the way down, who was in a P-80, and landed. My first powered flight we planned on taking it to 0.82 Mach number because no use fooling around at 0.8 where Slick had already made a lot of flights. So I uh, had a lot of ground runs on the rocket engine. I, oh, I, as soon as I dropped at 25,000, uh, I uh, fired off one of the chambers. And it was really a, an experience to fly a rocket because no, no moving parts and it's quiet and smooth. And I turned on number two and turned off one, turned off on number three, turned two off, turned number four on, turned number three off. Then with the one, number four, I pulled up and did a roll, and I let off on the, you know, when you pull up, you kind of let off on the back brake. When I got down to about zero G, engine quit. And when I rolled out again, it started up again, and I couldn't figure out why. And uh, 
I found out that the locks was cavitating under zero G conditions. We were faced with that problem, uh, the complete flight. Uh, X1As where it bit us, uh, you know, on the, that high altitude, high speed flight. And uh, so after after it reignited, I shut it off, and I was probably 28, 30,000 feet. And I came down across the base because all the guys were watching the first flight, and I came across the base, and it got up to about 500 mile an hour, you know, flicking heavy on the way down. Made a roll, rolled up, pulled it up, and lit off all four chambers. And uh, I was watching the Mach number, trying to stay under 8.2. And uh, oh, I this is what sort of height now? Oh, I, pull, I went across probably a couple, 300 feet by the runway or by the lake bed, edge of the lake bed, and then fired all four and pulled the thing up. And and in order to keep the, a positive G, I was doing a vertical barrel, you know, to keep positive G on it. And I was climbing up, and the nose got down a little bit as I went through about 40,000 feet. And uh, that old Mach meter got up to 8.4 before I knew it, so I shut it off and uh, jettisoned the fuel and came on down. I didn't know it was just as smooth and nice. and. Uh, but old, old Colonel Boyd, when we wrote up flight test report, man, I had a hot letter back, you know, reply by endorsement as to why you exceeded .82 and all that. Because he was he's a pretty tough old guy, and he's you know he's pretty strict disciplinarian. And uh, I think Jack Ridley, the flight test engineer, and I sat up all night trying to figure out how to answer his letter. But from then on, I never uh, exceeded what I was aiming for. But Anyway, I, next flight I took it out to, oh, I think around 8.6, and then we ran into our first buffeting at 8.8, eight, and uh, got into a little bit of lateral instability and uh, just just buffeting, and it just kind of wallowed a little bit. And uh, Was this the sort of buffeting you'd already come across on, on other aircraft? Yeah. yeah. And uh, one thing I found out, uh, when I got my, into my first buffeting, I, uh, <clears throat> I'd usually... I had learned from the P-84 that uh, you could take a P-84 out to 82 and it would sit there and buff it and start pitching up. Well, you could back off to 78, where it's real smooth, and pull about 3 Gs and get the, exactly the same buffet under the 3 G conditions that you've got straight and level at a higher Mach number. So I just sort of adopted the technique with the X-1, and when I got to the Mach number that I was aiming for that day, I'd roll the airplane over and pull about 3 Gs, and this would give me an indication as to what I would run into on the next flight straight and level. And I was just doing this on my own. And, uh, uh, and How is that explained aerodynamically? Because, I mean, your your wing hasn't changed. Well, yes, your angle of attack is changing, so you're theoretically getting oh. a thicker wing, see? Oh, I see, yeah. See, you're just increasing. That's, that's what you're doing, is yeah. increasing the thickness the cord ratio of your wing because increased angle of attack. So it's really analogous to stepping out on the ice and just tapping your yeah. foot on it, see if uh -huh. the ice is going to hold. And uh, see, that's what clobbered old uh, de Havilland. Uh, you see, he couldn't back off. Uh, mm. and, uh, and he was low down as well, I think. Well, a high Q, yeah. And see, uh, the to get in, uh, we'll get into that DH-108. I, I flew the X-4 later, mm. and uh, it had the same basically the same uh, uh, thickness on the wing and, and it was the same plan form mm -hmm. a tail a swept wing airplane and yeah. uh, uh, at 9-2 Mach number it went divergent on all three axes see it had enough power that we could go up to 40 45,000 feet yeah. and just increase our Mach number very steadily and uh, the little airplane was 
at 9-2 went divergent on all three axes and had I went any faster it would disintegrate so you had to I had to pop brakes to slow it down to get it out of it and that's what happened to the DH-1 see they were doing all their work going straight down because they were so underpowered and the, and he just got into high Q and just 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 overstressed the airplane mm -hmm. at about nine probably about nine two nine three Mach number anyway this orientation in three axes it's really due to compressibility effects on vertical and it's loss horizontal of, uh, yeah it's loss of stability on all three axes yeah. because yeah. of the shockwave effect on mm -hmm. the airplane well uh, I went on out at about on the sixth or seventh flight I went on out to uh, nine four Mach number I was just in increased buffeting and a little bit of wallow and then I went on out to 9.4 and at 9.4 I rolled the airplane over and pulled back and nothing happened the airplane just went to and I flopped the stick back and forth and so uh, hell I raked the rockets off and backed off and jettisoned the fuel and came on down and, and I was really worried because General Boyd I talked great length with him uh, he was he, he had one objective in it, the whole X-1 program that was safety he said you know we'd seen the British uh, knock off all R&D just because of a stupid accident and uh, and that really hurt him and he said I don't want anything to happen to this airplane and, and if you don't like the way the program's going he said you just call it off and we'll cancel it and that'll be it no questions asked so I was a little bit apprehensive because it had been predicted the X-1 would either pitch up or pitch down at the speed of sound and uh, with me no way to control it uh, I, I was a little bit apprehensive about the whole outcome and uh, one thing, uh, the X-1, still had no way of getting out of it. When you were in it, you were in it, and that's it. Uh, on everything, yeah. yeah. And uh, the one thing that uh, they had built into the X-1 was the capability of changing the angle of incidence of the horizontal stabilizer. And the way they did it, you know, we, we only had a 5,000 psi nitrogen gas pressure. We used this nitrogen gas through dome regulators to actuate the gear. Well, it wasn't electrically actuated. Oh no, nothing. We see, we had no, uh, we had no power source. No. He no. had, had no generators. He had no hydraulic uh, pressure. Just plain. So we pressurized this manifold up to 5,000 psi and run it through a dome regulator to actuate the gear. Use nitrogen pressure to pressurize the liquid oxygen tank and the water alcohol tank to force fuel back. We used. Uh, then we'd run the gas back to the tail. And we had a little air motor on top of this jack screw and an air motor on the bottom that uh, changed it would turn it one way to run the stabilizer down and turn it the other way and then we ran that gas up and ran it to the four psi orifices ran the gyros and then dumped that into the cockpit to pressurize the cockpit with so you were sitting there with a 100 percent nitrogen atmosphere in the cockpit so and we only had one oxygen system and, you and know, that's what of course limited your fuel load on the on the early one wasn't it huh that limited your fuel load yeah of course you have an air launch yeah, that's right, because and the main thing is we had a pretty heavy airplane because you had to have the heavy wall tanks uh, versus the X-1A. The X-1A, you know, you went to the hydrogen peroxide turbine pump system, that'd get thin aluminum walls. It was much, much lighter than the original X-1 and had a lot more fuel. But anyway, uh, we had never used this uh, horizontal stabilizer. It would always flew with it fixed. And uh, so I went up and checked the system out went out to point eight Mach number where I had the elevator control and uh, the uh, I changed the angle of this I could control it to about a quarter of a degree was you know because I used a solenoid to let the gas out and I control that solenoid from switch up in the cockpit and it's pretty crude but but successful and uh, so I ran the thing 
at point eight where I had elevator control, about a quarter of a leading edge nose down, it pulled about two G's, so I retrimmed it back and I think I was running on two chambers, let it accelerate out on point nine, made the same change, got the two G's, retrimmed it, let it set on out to point nine six or nine four Mach number. And there at 9.4, uh, where I'd lost the elevator control, I made a change, and the old thing pulled two Gs, just like it did down below. And so, hell, I shut it off. I remember it came on down. I said, uh, you know, i got no problem. If this thing starts pitching, I can control it with the horizontal stabilizer, although I'd lost the elevator control. And that's exactly what I did on the next flight. Uh, you could change the stabilizer angle quickly enough yeah, to respond. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, see, instead of using the stead, just use, use the beeper. beeper. And uh, the <laughs> switch, yeah. yeah. And from then on, the next flight, as I recall, uh, oh, I took it on up to nine six, and probably was very close to to nine nine true, because. Uh, and then the next flight, I think, was the ninth powered flight. Uh, I took it up and sat there and watched it at point nine six fluctuating, and then the Mach meter jumped plumb off the scale because it only went to one point zero, and uh, and uh, so. That was that was the end of it. So, and that was the fourteenth of October, forty-seven. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember well. Yeah, and then uh, later on, I went through a lot of flights with the airplane. Uh, took it up to oh one point five Mach number, and we got it up to seventy thousand feet. I made a total of about, I suppose, uh, forty some flights in the airplane, and then finally we retired it to the Smithsonian Institute in forty-seven. So. Um, can you tell me a bit now, I mean, uh, the uh, the follow-on planes, the X-1As, Bs, Cs, and so on? Well... The one you had that interesting tumble in. Well, the X-1A, uh, here again, <laughs> I was a victim of, uh, uh, well, you see, the X-1 was the first time any blue suitor or any military pilot was ever involved in research work. It had always been done by civilian pilots. and. Uh, and even Bell, the follow-on with the X-1A, what they did, they kept the same wing, same tail, same engine. They extended fuselage seven feet longer. And instead of two and a half minutes of fuel wide open, you had four and a half minutes of fuel because they'd taken out the spherical tank, put in a conical tank, thin wall, used hydrogen peroxide, turbine pumps to pump fuel back. So we had a much lighter system and a much smaller system. So uh, Bell went ahead and completed that airplane and had had a hard a pilot to fly. Uh, this guy was uh, uh, Skip Ziegler, was his name, and uh, the X-1A. Skip Ziegler flew the X-1A six powered flights. In fact, he never did take the airplane supersonic. He had never flown a supersonic airplane, uh, and I used to chase him in the F-86D, which could get out to about point nine three nine four Mach number. And I'd sit there on his wing and watch his ailerons flutter. And the buffet, the shockwaves on the airplane, and the buffeting, but he had always quit. I'd say, you know, he said it's it's buffeting and, you know, it's uh, he was, I think he was a little bit afraid of it. So uh, he flew it. I chased him every time. But then they were f afraid maybe that the lengthening of the fuselage had changed the, the uh, dynamics of the airplane. So uh, they were suspending it on springs and running some uh, static dynamic tests on it and in the meantime he went back to uh, Bell on the X2 they were just completing it and they were they were uh, perfecting a top-off system on the X2 
we had developed it for the X1A too, where see when we loaded liquid oxygen the X1 and and all the time it would boil off and when you dropped you'd boil away about 10 percent of your uh, your oxygen well this cuts away 10 percent of your time and which is critical when you start getting up to altitude so they put in I think it was about a 500 gallon liquid oxygen tank in the B50 that dropped the X1A and they were doing the same thing to the X2 back at Bell and they had the X200 and they were running some top-off tests over Lake Erie and uh, uh, they had developed a new system instead of using this these manifold spheres for 5,000 pounds of pressure they'd gone to a stainless steel coil and they'd used this coil as the structure of the liquid oxygen tank in the end and uh, evidently through fatigue it, the coil failed on the X2 it failed on the latter models the X1 I think it was the D and possibly the X1A later on we lost it too and uh, uh, he was in the Bombay of the B-50, and there was an explosion in the X-2, which blew the X-2 out, and Skip Ziegler and killed him. Well, there sat Bell, and uh, Mr. Bell uh, went to the Air Force and said, uh, how about letting uh, Yeager finish up the test on the X-1A? And the Air Force said, yeah, he might as well. He has most rocket experience. And uh, so I was put in the X-1A program, and... Uh, Jack and I looked at the program. Jack Ridley was, you know, sort of my brain. Uh, you've read a lot about him. Uh, he was really a sharp cookie. He was a damn good pilot. Yet, he, see, I only had a high school education. That's all I had. And I had a little bit of trouble, you know, correlating uh, aerodynamic phrases with with airplanes. Uh, sometimes no Jack would interpret for me. So, And he, I had a great deal of confidence in him. And... Uh, so all we did was sit down and work out a profile where we, I wanted to get the damn X1A program over with because I was doing a lot of work, uh, you know, doing an awful lot of flying and uh, this was 53 and I'd been in flight test all almost seven years and about 4,000 hours of it and I was getting kind of, uh, kind of unstrung sometimes because of the, so much work and so much flying and most of the time under a very uh, hazardous conditions. And, and we'd wiped out about all of our test pilot fleet, and there's only me and Pete Everest left, you know. So I even asked, uh, I had four kids. I even asked uh, Mr. Bell, uh, you know, if he, although he couldn't pay me anything, I was a military pilot. I said, you, should, you can take out insurance on me, and the Air Force said that you can. And uh, so he went ahead and took a pretty heavy policy out on me to fly the airplane. And Jack and I worked out a profile flight where... Uh, we figured in order to get the maximum speed out of the X1A, uh, we'd drop at uh, 30,000 feet, far off three of the chambers, climb at 0.8 to 45,000, level out at 45, far the fourth, go to 1.1, and then go through this profile climb, hitting 50,000 at about 1.3, 60,000 at about 1.5, and you're pretty steep at this point, so then you start pushing over. You had to hold one-tenth of a G because if it went to zero, you'd cavitate your lock and you hold one-tenth of a G and become level at 70 at about 1.9 and it's just hold it there and let it run out of fuel and we figured we could get about 2.2 or 2.3 well then Bell engineers got a little bit excited said now, look we're not too sure what's going to happen above 2.2 with this air we see there was no wind tunnel data on it and they said uh, you may uh, have problems with the stability above 2.2 and uh, 
actually uh, we worked it out and I made first flight I took it to 1.3 it flew exactly like the X1 did the you buffeting you still the lost element way through huh you still had to trim your way through like you did on the yeah. X1 uh-huh. yeah yeah just uh, exactly and I just went ahead and took it off to 1.3 no problem you know and it's, I sat there and watched your Skip Ziegler screw up every flight and you, you sort of gnash your teeth but that's not your job you're a military pilot and you're not involved in that sort of thing and you know this guy's uh, draw down tremendous bonus money and it's really not right and it never has been as far as I'm concerned uh, they, they got a lot of you know military pilots that are as, like in your country uh, hell put your military pilots with the company and let them do the work the civilian pilots in my country don't get paid I'll tell you I know it it's very well aware of it and they don't deserve it I'll tell you yeah. the truth well anyway uh, second flight I took it up to about 55 went out to 1.5 which was the fastest we'd ever had the old X1 straight wing airplane mm -hmm. and in the meantime a D558 had been up to about 1 1.9 so uh, third flight I went on up to uh, 65,000 sat there and zapped it out to 1.9 it was just beautiful and uh, so uh, fourth flight and I really hit everything perfect the old uh, the drop was perfect uh, the all the, the engines ignited just like that the chambers and and I was right on profile. Only thing that happened on the climb, you can't see outside. We had a, and not unlike the X1, which had a flush canopy, you couldn't see nothing. The X1A had a bubble canopy. You went in from the top. So we had, I sat in the X1B at eight. Yeah. Okay. Like. And we still had no ejection seat, no way of getting out. So mm -hmm. you still stuck. Uh, so the airplane, uh, all I couldn't. And I had about a 55 degree climb angle as I went through 60,000 feet and I started letting down. Well, I was about 10 degrees steeper than I should have been. So consequently, instead of getting level at 70, I was sitting there, I had a pressure suit on too, and uh, I, I was almost to 80,000 feet the time I got the airplane level because I had to be real careful on the pushover. And uh, I was sitting there looking at 1.9 Mach number at 80,000 feet, so I just dropped the nose down a little bit, and God, that thing was really accelerating. We're picking up 31 miles per hour per second, which is damn fast. Uh, you know, we're getting down to where we got more thrust and weight about on one G acceleration. You're still burning. Oh, yeah, see, yeah, still burning. And uh, I sat there and watched that Mach meter go through 2.2 and 2.3, and as it went through 2. Point, about 2.4, Jesus Christ, your nose began to yaw. I pushed in rudder and nothing happened. And boy, the nose began to yaw and uh, God. And then dihedral effect, the wing started coming up and I cracked in full aileron and nothing happened. And it, I was up uh, looking at about a little over 2.5 at that point and that's where it burned. I ran out of fuel and just quit. And boy, at that time, the nose was yawed 40 degrees left and, uh, and it was beginning to roll over. Well, it flipped back under and pulled about two negative G's and then really got in got in phase you know the yaws and uh, so I was getting at max rotational rate here again the canopy went on the thing and my suit inflated and uh, on a negative G and uh, I was fogged up on my face piece because I, it got hot and I kept the rheostat down on the little filaments in the face piece and I was trying to get old it and when everything really came unglued, uh, I, I really didn't know. I didn't know what had happened. I had no idea. I thought the tail had come off the airplane or something, and I knew I was faced with a problem. I had no way of getting out of the airplane. I was wondering what part of the, 
to Ashby's I was going to hit in, and uh, I couldn't say anything because of things that uh, I was so disoriented that the airplane was had a maximum rotation rate was about 580 degrees per second. That's two two snap per second. That's pretty fast. So you're putting a lot of transverse G there. Well, that's right. What I was getting is about nine positive, two side, two negative, two side, nine positive, going through two cycles like that per second. One thing I did, it just, I had, I couldn't orient, I couldn't see, I didn't know what was happening. All I knew was I was getting beat all to hell. And uh, so I just pretty well conceded the fact that, you know, I'd just, I'd stay in the airplane. I had nothing to do. Then I just, so I stayed. I, I actually have no idea what was going on, but uh, then the thing, uh, the first thing, as it slowed down, it began to get a lot heavier G's in a steady state, eight to nine G's, and I blacked out because I had no juice suit on, of course. And, uh, and the next thing, I instinctively rolled a horizontal stabilizer full leading edge up or nose down trim. And the airplane where I ended up was in an inverted spin when I could see and orient myself at about 34,000 feet. And I got the rheostat turned up so to burn the fog off, I could see then. And then I uh, saw my stabilizers trim leading edge up, so I retrimmed it to zero and put the control with the, with the spin and, and it popped into a normal spin. I'd spun the old X1 a lot, just for the fun of it. Uh, and I'd been a lot of spin tests on different airplanes. So then I used a conventional spin recovery on the X1A from the inverted spin flipped into normal spin, I popped it out at 25,000 feet. And then I oriented myself, I was almost to, to Hatchapi over here, and I spotted the lake bed and I glided back. And then that's when I called in and said that... Uh, if you had a seat, you, would have, you wouldn't have been there now. Yeah, would you... I've got the recording of that. Did you ever, did you read Bill Lunger's book that he wrote? Uh, he's got a transcription of the, no, of the conversation. Bill? Bill Lundgren, the hero. Oh, yeah. We uh, wrote a book back in 53 on the X series. Uh, no, I'll get hold of it. And uh, it's, I just said that, you know, uh, I was in deep trouble. I couldn't hardly breathe uh, and I was pretty well beat up. And uh, it only took about a minute for me to become rational again and uh, to the point of where I had a little sense of humor. I said, you won't have to run a structural demonstration on this damn thing, that's for sure. So, anyway, I came on back and landed and uh, that was, it just, the data shows uh, I, the, the figures that I were using, we got beautiful data on that flight. God, it's really hairy stuff to see, too. NASA has it all. And we're shooting films out across the right, right wing, and it's, they're beautiful to see. Man, airplane just goes everywhere but loose. And, uh, and, uh, but you were in a stall condition then? No, no, it just exceeded these. <clears throat> because, see, your shock cone begins yeah. to lay down, and it completely blanked out the vertical and horizontal stabilizer to the point of where uh, uh, we lost stability on all three axes. It's it was like all a, dead air around your control yeah. surface. Yeah. See, and, it just, it just, and that's the reason the tails were too small. That's the reason we went to a bigger tail on the X2, which operated out to a little better, about 3.2 Mach number. And then the airplanes like, uh, well, the SR-71, anything that operates out beyond 2.2 Mach number has to have a lot more vertical surface on it than. Uh, Is that the same sort of problem in the F100? Same kind of coupling problem you had? No. Uh, you mean when the Wheaties Wells got killed? Yeah. Well, that's uh, that should never have happened. Uh, see, the F100 came out 
with a non with a uh, linear stick to stabilizer control system and the airplane had you couldn't hardly you couldn't even fly formation in with the damn thing on the first f-100s that we picked up and we got in a little flap with the uh, north american and the, and the north american test pilot said god damn it the flight control system is no good on the f-100 it's directionally unstable it's got too little a vertical stabilizer and north american said no no you're, you guys are biased you know you can't uh you're too critical we've got a supersonic airplane here so it's they called in the tac pilots the fighter pilots and let them fly well gee all they could see they were f-86 pilots all they could see was 1.2 mach number you know and then they weren't flying formation with it and they weren't aware but uh, anyway at about this time old Wheaties was one running the 1.4 6g demonstration and it just flat at 1.4 mach number under 6g conditions uh, uh, directionally unstable yawed the nose broke off the airplane and uh, so then they went to 26 percent more tail they went to a non-linear stick stabilizer uh, flight control system uh, a better uh, gradient in the ailerons and fixed what we wanted them to fix early in the game and that was it so. mm -hmm. can you tell me a bit about the x4 now you mentioned it yeah the, back. Uh, the x4 uh, was basically uh, just to just to get data in a semi-tailless airplane, vermis like uh, built practically the identical to the D5 or to the to the DH-108, and uh, the one thing we had in the X4 was a, a much better thrust weight ratio. Got these two to last 16. The X4 is relatively small and light, so uh, we had almost as much thrust as we had weight. And another thing we had in the X4 was the whole the last 30% of the cord of the wing split 60 degrees into the speed break. Man, you could stop that thing just like that. It was a beautiful little airplane to fly. I did all the test work on it. And uh, the one thing, as I told you, was uh, at .92 Mach number, when you begin to run into your buffet, boy, you, you snuck up on it gradually because it, as, you, as it went, it began to yawn. If you didn't do anything and it stayed at that Mach number, man, it just went divergent, increase and in, uh, and the frequency would increase and the magnitude would increase on pitch, yaw, and roll at the same time. And you could pop the brakes and slow it or come back on the power and slow it down. And uh, of course, that's that stop, you know, that wipes you out. You're, you've mm. you've uh, expanded your envelope to the edges and that's, uh, mm. that's it. And you, you, you never got around that problem on, on the X4. You got uh, no, it wasn't, any way of doing, it wasn't any way of getting around because it didn't have a tail. Didn't have a horizontal uh, stabilizer. Mm. So it had a very short life. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I, I saw it up at the museum. It's slung in the corner of a workshop, just a bit of the fuselage left, looking very, very unhappy. Up at the Air Force Museum. Oh, really? They got it up there in the. In well, the restoration they were. Part. See, there were two of them. One is at the Air Force Academy. The other yeah. one's down at the Air War College at McGurn. And they brought that up to the. Air Force Museum, and geez, it was in beautiful shape when they brought it up there. I'm, I don't know what they're doing. Well, they're waiting for bits and pieces, but it oh, was thrown in a corner. Oh, they just probably haven't assembled it or put it yeah, together yet. Maybe. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, on the X-5, uh, you, know, you could sweep its wings in flight, and uh, at point, it would do .82 Mach number with the wings straight and buff it. You could sweep them, they'd go out to .92 Mach number. That's simple. It was never supersonic though, the X-5, was it? Yeah, you could drive, you could dive it, same as uh, F-86 up uh -huh. to supersonic, well, just 105, uh -huh. like that. Uh -huh.
What other? Uh, you you must have flown about every airplane the Air Force ever had, haven't you? Yeah, I've flown, and the same way at the. I did uh, quite a bit of work on the, uh, oh, the Hawker Hunters, and uh, worked over there with with uh, Neville Duke and uh, Bill Bedford and uh, a lot of the guys. Uh, uh, they would run into compressor problems when they fired the guns on the, hmm. the Hawker Hunter, the Mark IV, and uh, we went over with an idea of building a bleep electrical bleep in the fuel regulator where when you fired the guns that cut the fuel pressure down and uh, mm. see and they got out with compressor stall problems and then while I was there I flew the uh, uh, I think it's a Mark Six had the the Avon the RA ten engine, mm. the big bigger engine in. Mm. But you know, we can never make the Hawker Siddeley group put a flying tail on that damned airplane and that we call them stupid. You call you, you know. You say you're dumb. You gotta have the damn airplane has a performance, and at point nine two Mach number, man, you're out of business. That's simple. And we were flying F eighty sixes with flying tails. And he said, you you have to. No, we don't have to. Just a few weeks ago, I had Neville Duke sitting on the end of that microphone. Yeah. And I was asking him almost this question. He went to the P-1040, the P-1052, yeah. the P-1081, you know, little by little. And I suppose it was really that Sidney Cam was a very slow mover. He was a very cautious engineer, was he? Well, you know, I, it's, it's, I gave many talks in England uh, to the, the, uh, the Royal... Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and you know that it was almost an insult the questions they would ask just such things as you've seen pictures of the X-1 you see the fairing on top of the fuselage and how would such a stupid you know design uh, help the X-1 get supersonic I said it don't it, you've got a spherical tank that fills the fuselage and that fairing is for the flight controls and plumbing it's simple yeah? but that they were so uh, Hunter had the same thing. oh god yeah they were, they were so narrow-minded and fixed in their ways that it was, you know, and I'm pretty outspoken. I really shouldn't be. Yeah, I know that. I, uh, <laughs> I realize uh, that. But that, I used to get so damn mad with the engineers over there and, and old Duke, the same way. Those guys, I said, you guys are nuts. Here, we sh show you an F-86 with a flying tail. We'll give you the design. And even even when I was down in uh, Pakistan, 71, 2 and 3, uh, flying with the Pak Air Force for the war against India, man, we were just chewing up hawker hunters with F-86s. Causing no tail. Same MiG-15, same way. Or when I went out to fly at MiG-15 in Okinawa, I sat there and looked at it, and if, when I, as soon as I laid eyes on it, I knew where I was shooting down 12 MiGs for every F-86 we lost. The horizontal tail stabilized, horizontal stabilizers uh, riveted to the vertical stabilizer. It's that simple. And mm -hmm. it was at 9, 3 Mach number, the airplane buffeted rally dive, and the old stick flopped back and forth. To get it up to higher Mach number, I went in inverted at 48,000 feet wide open, and I almost went straight in the ground before I got you the thing really out. You under, did you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah well, he just fell because I had yeah. no control. You know, mm -hmm. like, I kept power on. I had uh, Tom Collins on my wing at an F-86, and, and I figured when I got into higher Q, denser air, it would slow blow 9-3, which it did, and I pulled out at about oh, six or 8,000 feet. But, this was all done on the gauges because we were in bad weather. And that's the thing that, uh, you know, we, we talk about the X-1 and 
probably the most important thing that came out of that whole program was finding out that we needed a horse, a, a flying tail to operate above 9394 Mach number. You know, the data that we were getting back in October 47 was going straight to North American, Boeing, Lockheed, every contractor here in the United States, and your country too. And uh, that's the F-86, he was on the drawing boards at that time, and when it came out uh, three years later, it had a flying tail on it, and it really could operate in the region of the speed of sound, take advantage of its performance capability. And that, that was the one thing that came out of the whole X-1 program mm. that I could see was really valuable other than finding out that you could fly an airplane at or above Mach 1 without it flying apart or mm, mm. things like that. Now the first really uh, supersonic design that came out of Britain was the English Electric B1, the Lightning. Yeah, that's right. Suddenly after this big yeah. gap, yeah, jumped in. Yeah, I think that, you know, losing the DH-108 uh, really hurt uh, Great Britain mm. a tremendous amount. Man, their aerodynamic uh, reshirt, airframe reshirt just quit. Mm. And even as late as uh, oh, 54, you know, when we were out working in 100s and things, you still talked to them, uh, and they were so hard-headed about uh, doing, getting into the supersonic uh, business. I don't know what happened. It just was that way. So. Mm -hmm. Well, there should have been the Miles M52 yeah. about the time of your X1. Uh -huh. But uh, that was a government cutback, and you know whether it was finance or whether it was this uh, attitude that you yeah. just described, mm -hmm. it's probably a mixture of the both. You had another adventure in an F-104 trying to set an altitude record, didn't you? Well, we were doing, uh, I was a commandant of the school, uh, and what I, we were trying to do is establish profiles for using the NF-104 uh, as an, a trainer, an astronaut trainer in the school. We were in the space training business, and. Uh, uh, we could get, we were using standard 104As, we'd get them about 75,000 feet and only get about 15 or 20 seconds of zero G. Uh, and we, guys wear a pressure suit, but with the NF-104, we had a sidearm control, hydrogen peroxide rockets uh, in the top and bottom of the nose, side of the nose, and top and bottom of the wing, get it up to 118,000 feet, get a minute and a half of zero G under space conditions, see, with a sidearm controller and hydrogen peroxide for, for attitude. Yeah. yeah, for attitude control, and do it in a cheap way. And I was uh, doing most of the work on the airplane, and, and we were getting ready uh, on the 50th anniversary of uh, powered flight, which would have been December the 12th, uh, 53, 63. Let's see, 63, I'd been a they flew in 1903. It had been the 60th anniversary, wouldn't it? Well, we're trying to set it on that day, and uh, we're doing a lot of work. I had quite a few flights in the meantime, and we'd established down. We are doing, we were working, you know, the 104 is a bad pitch up above about 15, 18 degrees. And once it goes, if it gets into a spin, flat spin, the only, and it spins flat, the only way that you can get an, a 104 out of a spin, any 104, is high engine RPM and the gyroscopic effect of the engine at high RPM causes the flat spin to precess down and you can fly it out that way and we pop it out and we do we knew this in the 104 as well uh, I'd made a flight and had worked just down to 108,000 feet that morning and I was fooling around with angles of attack approaching 60 degrees over the top but the very light aerodynamic pitch up as you went above 20 degrees 
I could override it with a hydrogen peroxide rocket and, and you know, press, bring the nose on down to zero angle of attack during re-entry. <clears throat> we thought we could do this, probably we wouldn't start getting into the critical area until we got down to about 90,000 feet, you know, down to where about 80%, above 80% of the atmosphere. We thought, so the afternoon flight, I dropped it to 104,000 feet and boy, there I sat at 104,000 feet at about 60 degrees angle of attack with both my hydrogen peroxide rockets open on the top of the nose and nothing is happening. A damn thing sat there and re-entered, kept increasing angle of attack. I couldn't get the nose down with the, with the, with the rocket and the top. And the uh, damn thing, you know, just went to z 90 degrees angle of attack, flat spun off. And I couldn't, uh, I could stop the spin, rotation spin, I couldn't get the nose down. And what you do in a, in a uh, flight like that, you accelerate out to about 2.4 Mach number on the rocket and pull about 4 Gs to 70 degrees angle of attack. And it, you're, uh, you watch your tailpipe temperature on the jet engine, and the afterburner will blow out at about 60. And as you go through 70, you've got to watch your tailpipe temperature, or it'll over tamp on you. And usually you shut the jet engine down at about 70,000 to keep them over temp. It's, it's windmilling all the way up. The rocket's taking you up to about 100, and then you coast over the top and then come back in using your hydrogen peroxide to control the airplane. And uh, in the meantime, the engine RPM windmilling down to about 60%, but then when you get on the other side and start down, then you st it'll sit there and hold the windmill, giving you hydraulic pressure and generator, electrical power. Well, when that thing went flat, uh, and my engine RPM started bleeding off, bleeding off, and finally at about uh, 50,000 feet, I had zero RPM and locked up control. So, but the airplane was flat and just fell flat. And uh, I was sitting there looking at my boom out the nose, boy, the yaw vein, you know, sticking straight up. And <laughs> and it turned a little bit, fell off, and it would go flat again. And it wasn't a hell of a lot I could do. I popped the drag chute at about 30,000 feet. That boy, brought that old nose right down. They got beautiful films, that thing, incidentally. I don't know if you've seen them or not. But I was talking to Ted Bear yesterday. It's, yeah. it's on his files, but I haven't yeah. had a chance to look at it. Straight down, and finally, when I looked at 180 knots, uh, I still I didn't get any windmill back. Uh, and the, the shear pins designed on the drag chute to come off at 180 knots. I went ahead and jettisoned the drag chute, and within two-tenths of a second, it went from there to flat again. And so I had no, no choice. I waited probably a little long. Uh, trying to do something but there wasn't anything to do so I, I uh, popped out of it probably about 11,000 feet which is only about 8,000 feet above the ground which is fine but except for one problem the airplane's falling straight down at 100 miles an hour the rocket seat gives you 90 straight up so it suspended me and and the seat rotated in two tenths or I mean two seconds after I left the airplane the lap belt popped open and the seat uh, the butt kicker kicked me out of the seat, but I was down. I guess it kicked me down. But here again, I was only falling about probably about 15, 20 miles an hour. I felt my F5 release open the parachute, the bungee pull the chute open, and the, it streamed. But I didn't have enough speed to pull the quarter bag off the canopy. You know, a canopy is designed with the quarter bag to come yeah. out at high speed to yeah. slow the opening. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so. God, there I was, and the damn seat fell on top of me and came down. 
through the shroud lines. And finally, as I got up to about 60 miles an hour, the quarterback come off and the canopy popped. And when it did that, I had good position. I was falling face down. I had pressure suit on, which was inflated, of course. And then uh, when the chute popped, my risers, I was like that. It flew me like that, and the damn seat hit me in the face. Yeah. And what hit me was the butt end of the rocket, which was still glowing. Gee the rocket in the seat and it hit me and busted my it stunned me pretty bad and it busted my whole face piece out and deposited all this glowing propellant in this 100% oxygen atmosphere in my suit and then ignited and the seals began to burn and boy it was really roaring uh, what about the aircraft were you still formating with it or well no it was under me <laughs> it was falling faster than I was <laughs> not uh, but uh, fortunately, uh, when the seat hit me, it cut my eye across here, yeah. and my eye socket filled with blood. And the flame, I got some pretty bad burns. I had a lot of skin yeah. work. See the all down yeah. back yeah. and my ear. My fingers were burned. Tips of my fingers burned off trying to get air. I couldn't breathe because of the flame and smoke. And uh, all, uh, finally, I had enough sense. I knew I had to get that visor up, or at least what was left of it to shut off the oxygen because it's the only way you shut off the oxygen system raise the visor that shuts off the firewall kit which is a part of your suit and uh, I finally got the visor up and that, that shut off the flow of oxygen you know it was it was really clobbering my all my seals were burning I was burning I all full of smoke and uh, and uh, I still couldn't see anything and oh by then I saw that I'd get pretty close to the ground out of my right eye and I made a good landing. I, I fell down because of the pressure suit and the kit was pretty heavy. And I remember uh, Andy was chasing me. I bailed out three times. He'd been on my wing all three Andy. times. Bud Anderson. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we flew combat together. We shot down airplanes together. We were in flight tests together. All of our, our whole careers were parallel. Mm -hmm. And uh, and when I hit the ground, I, I got up and I looked at my hand, my glove was all, was still burning, leather and the rubber was melted and I, it was beginning to hurt. And I couldn't see, I actually took my helmet off, my neck band, the full pressure suit neck band, and you know, that was unheard of, you, you couldn't do that, theoretically, but I took it off. And uh, about that time a chopper landed, picked me up and uh, boy, it took me back to the, out the hospital, landed out there, took me in, I remember the doc was uh, digging in my eye uh, through all the blood and scabs and smoke, I mean the burnt stuff. And he uh, finally uh, saw a little light. He asked me, could I see anything? I said, no, it's pretty black. And uh, I was beginning to get woozy because he'd given me morphine. I was hurt so bad in the burns. And finally, uh, he got. I said, yeah, I can see a little light now. And he kept digging, kept digging. Finally, he got to my eyeball, so it worked out pretty good. <laughs> What's the most enjoyable airplane you've flown? Probably the F-5. F-5? By, by far, yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. The twin engine, you know, for redundancy. It's primarily, it's just a sweet airplane to fly. I've seen it in displays. Yeah. It moves nicely. Yeah. It's just a wonderful little, it's so well coordinated. Uh, F-4 is nice, but the flight control system in the F-4 is not very good compared to other airplanes. It's F-4 probably is the easiest airplane to land that, that I've flown, a high-performance airplane. But uh, the most fun airplane to fly is, is an F-5, probably. And what's the worst one, the biggest can of worms you've had? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we flew some pretty sorry airplanes, like the XF-92, the first Delta Wing airplane. I did the work on that, too. And 
Well, that's, if that thing had a stick 18 feet long, you probably could fly it pretty good. But uh, it was the first irreversible system that ever flew, incidentally. Yeah, yeah. I took the airplane supersonic, too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it it was pretty pretty squirrely airplane. But yeah. I mean, you got to realize those are research airplanes. And, no, I, I talked to Dick Johnson and uh, Scott Crossfield, and they both yeah. had the same verdict on me. Well, I, Scott never fooled around with that 92. I think he flew it once or twice. But Scott, uh, Scott, uh, I don't know, uh, he he creamed the X-1 nose gear. He creamed the X-15. He's not a, uh, unfortunately, uh, he gets himself into trouble every once in a while. He's like, I gave him an F-100. That's the funniest thing. Uh, See, NACA then, uh, yeah. although NACA was involved with the X-1, only from an instrumentation standpoint. And uh, see, we were flying, we decided, like a Walt Williams and D. Beeler, and they decided, uh, well, you know, we don't think you should go to 9-2 today or to go 9-1. Well, we'd do pretty well what we wanted to go. We were flying, we knew what, and Jack Ridley especially. Jack was brains. Uh, on the X-1. Well, when uh, NACA got into the research business, normally I checked Scott out and uh, checked, they had uh, Champagne, I checked him out, Herb Hoover, checked him out. Oh, Christ, they just weren't, they didn't have a lot of experience flying high-performance airplanes and they'd, you know, cream them on landing or something. Well, I delivered the first F-100 to NACA uh, over there when Scott was flying it. I said, Scott, uh, you know, give me. They ran an acceptance inspection. I said, "Give me a call when you get ready to fly it, and I'll uh, come over and point out a few things about it." You know, he's he's pretty arrogant type. Uh, he said, "Well, it's dash one in there, the airplane." I said, "Yeah," and, and so I never heard anything. And Walt Williams called me about two weeks later and said, "You want to see something funny?" And I said, "Oh, what?" He said, "Come over and look in the hangar." So I went over there, and here's this F-100 with the nose sticking plumb through the wall of the hangar, and I said. I laughed. I said, what in the hell is going on? He said, that your buddy Scott uh, went out and flew it and lost the utility system and didn't have sense enough to know he didn't have any brakes. So he landed on the lake bed and was going to come on up and park in front of the hangar, you know. And uh, So he did. He came right on up in through the hangar right through the wall. <laughs> but a lot of times you get involved. Uh, it's a, it was a great deal in those days. Uh, Probably a great deal of uh, competitive spirit between between military pilots and civilian pilots. Hell, Scott was a civilian pilot. Damn, he worked for North American, and uh, then he went to work for NACA, uh, just like uh, Neil Armstrong and the other guys. Uh, but I've always been been military, and I'm pretty damn proud of it. And, uh, and I've always thought that, uh, which has pretty well been demonstrated, the military guys. It's not because they're military, because it's because of experience and. There is no such thing as a natural-born pilot uh, anywhere in the world. I don't care if a guy's got slant eyes or yellow or black or purple. Uh, uh, his capability is predicated on the amount of experience he has. It's that simple. Yeah, but you were a pretty young pilot in, in the war. And I had a lot of run. experience, though. But I, see, I had some 1,500 hours of Mustang time. I had flown P-47s uh, when I got into flight test. When I went into flight test in '45. Hell, that's 22 years old, but that age doesn't make any difference. I had about, when the X-1 came along in 47, uh, I probably had close to 3,000 hours of real good flying under my belt. And that's a lot of time for a young pilot. And yeah. like, I, 
like I've flown with uh, pilots that, like in the war Pakistan and India, I sat there and, and flew with the Pakistani pilots that had six and seven thousand hours in an F-86, and boy, you, I couldn't touch them. They were sharp. And uh, that's the way, uh, like Jackie Cochran, man, she's a hell of a good pilot because she's got a, a lot of thousands of hours of flying time. Where did she get all her hours over? She flew, it headed up the wasp. She ferried a lot of airplanes. She took first bomber over to England. And, uh, she, uh, oh, she had P-51s. She had load stars. And then she uh, flew the T-33 and the, the Canadair. Mr. Odlum owned quite a bit of uh, stock in Canadair. And they hired her on as a test pilot, just like Northrop Harders as a pilot. As a civilian pilot, and as said, she's authorized to fly their contractor airplanes, and she's a damn good pilot, too. and it's because she has a lot of experience. Yeah. And that's what bit a lot of the guys in the early days uh, stepping in, like NACA types and contractor types, stepping into new exotic equipment, high-performance equipment, with no experience. And uh, see, we sat back and we came up the hard way. We lost a lot of guys too in the military, but. Uh, uh, I used to hate. I used to hate to see a lot of time wasted. You know, transitioning a pilot into a high performance airplane so he could test it. You know, it's mm. kind of stupid. Mm. Fine. Well, I think we've uh, okay covered up. Great.